So this morning I'm starting a three-part series. It's called Now Converted, Lessons from the Life of Peter. And so this is the first part. We're going to kind of do a, a speed through, if you will, because it's only three parts. But uh, <clears throat> we're going to be looking at snippets of his life and how God led him uh, and how he was prepared for some things and maybe not so prepared as he thought he was for other things as we develop this along. But as we begin, uh, let's see. Yeah, I'm going to ask, do you like to burn things? Are there any (laughs) pyromaniacs here in the house? That's where you just love to start anything and everything on fire. Maybe it started with a magnifying glass. Uh, Maybe you started melting some of your toys. I hope not. Um, Just this week, we were at Elizabeth's uncle's house, and he had a a torch that he said he paid $10 for that attached to his propane tank, and he could strike that thing up, and there was literally a flame this big that you could barely see because it was blue, just going, and I thought, now that's cool. (laughs) I need to get me one of those. But here we are burning brush, and you know, the hard part is to get the fires going. They say the best time to burn brush is when it's lightly sprinkling or raining, but if you can get that going, and that can be the challenge, you get some dry wood under there, but once it's really hot, you can't even get very close to that fire. You have to shield your face and other things and and toss it in, and at some point, it doesn't matter what you toss in, it's going to burn, am I right? I mean, it can be green, you, can, you just cut it just five minutes ago, and it's a great way to clear. Of course, fires are extra fun at night. How many of you have poked in a fire for, I don't know, hours maybe? What's, what's so satisfying about poking into a fire? I don't know, but it's mesmerizing, isn't it? Uh, or sometimes you, my kids like to put cans in there. Here's one that maybe you haven't heard of. If you take, this is not in my notes, this is just for free. If you take a paper cup, and if you can balance that thing or stick a hole, you know, with a stick or something through the top, and lay it in some hot coals, paper cup, it will burn all the way down to the top edge of the water, and then the water will boil, but it will not burn the cup. Have you ever tried that? Some of you aren't believing me. (laughs) Go home and try it. It will eventually evaporate out and burn slowly down, down, down. But if you get it settled in there, all right, that's not what I'm here to talk about. (laughs) But fires are are super fun at night. Well, on one specific occasion, I think it was almost two years ago, it was in February, it was 2021, the Wilkie family was not feeling well. Um, There was, I think Faye was still okay, but Ivan had COVID, COVID, Kathy had COVID, Bryce had COVID. We were wondering how can we cheer them up from a distance. You're saying, what does this have to do with the fire? I'm getting there. We still had our Christmas tree, our live Christmas tree. And so our tradition in our house is we take the the tree out and we set it someplace and just let it cure a little longer until there's an opportune time that we can do what to the Christmas tree? Burn Burn it, there's the fire. It's a little bit scary what happens when you burn a Christmas tree. So we loaded up in the back of the pickup. We drove over to the Wilkies because we're in the neighborhood now and this can kind of panic the neighbors, but we thought we can do it in the Wilkies field. So that's exactly what we did. And we called them. So I'm on the phone with Bryce in the moment. We said, come out on the porch. We have a surprise for you. (laughs) Now this is redneck, isn't it? But this is how we roll here in the south. So we're burning our Christmas tree in their field. And there's the kids. I mean, you can't get too close. I mean, it just gets enormous. How many of you have ever done this? Raise your hand. Don't be shy. Okay. See, I'm not the only redneck here this morning. Look at that flame. That's incredible. I hope there's nobody here from the fire department today. Did I have a permit? Don't ask me that question. <clears throat> fire. Now, there are some things... Okay, I'm going to transition now to there are some things that you burn them and they won't be consumed. And you think, well, what is that? Well, gold is such an example of something that will not be consumed. Do you know how hot you can make gold? Here, I wrote some of these things down. The melting point of gold is 1,943 degrees Fahrenheit. Whoa, that's pretty hot. Do you know the boiling point of gold? 
5,173 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's one of the highest melting points of almost any metal. And so when they extract gold from the earth, there's a lot of things they do to refine it, but one of the ways is to heat it so hot that any impurity does what? It melts or it burns, it, it, it dissipates, it, it goes away in this process. And what you pour out is this pure gold substance. And gold won't corrode or rust or tarnish. Fire can't destroy it, at least not fires that, that I can manufacture. They say the Egyptians used charcoal and some blow pipes to reach the temperature needed to melt gold. Because there's lots of gold used in Egyptian artifacts and so on. And they would take the slag or the impurities, they'd skim that off the top. And in fact, Peter mentions or hints at this very process. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to jump in here. We're talking about Peter. I haven't kept track how many times I've used the word Peter. You're going to be in trouble. You better get this right. You got a lot of accountants out here. So we are in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning verse 3. It's going to be a tough one. Peter is writing this in what probably is the last few years of his life. We don't know if he lived to be in his 50s, would probably be my guess. Maybe he got to 60. We think he was executed probably at, at 64 AD by Nero, but this is towards the latter portion. But we read here, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith, for salvation ready to be revealed in, when? The last time. But then verse six, in this you greatly rejoice. In what? In the inheritance that's reserved for you in heaven. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while it need be you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we have a hope, we have an inheritance, and we are so thankful and grateful for that. But he says in verse six, now for this time, you will be confronted with various trials. That in a similar way like the gold is tried in the fire, you too and your character will be tried in the fire. And the impurities burned out. Does anybody know a little bit about that process? It's not necessarily a fun process. Trials, tribulation, hard times, the unsurety of it all. But Peter reminds us there is a purpose in the trials to reform our character. And so let's pick up the story. We're going to, again, be skipping through like a pebble uh, through this story, and we're not going to get all the way through everything today, and we'll be back and forth between various Gospels. But I want to look at Luke chapter 5, and we'll read the first five verses. Luke chapter 5, beginning verse 1. And here we have the call of Peter, and I really like Luke's account of this. Luke chapter 5, and so we read there, So it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, which is also Lake Galilee, and saw two boats standing by the lake. 
But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he, Jesus, got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, or Simon Peter, and asked him to put out a little while from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. Verse 4, when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, anybody that knows anything about fishing knows that daytime is not the time you want to use nets primarily. It's nighttime that you're going to catch something when the net is more disguised. Verse 5, but Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and have caught how much? Nothing. We've been cleaning our nets for a good while now, getting all the little flecks and, and pieces of grass and everything out that also give us away. They're clean now. They're ready for another time when it's more favorable. Honestly, Jesus, this doesn't make any sense. But here's what Peter says. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down the net. They've heard enough teaching. They've been around Jesus long enough that they're familiar with who he is. Some faith has been built up. And so he says, if you say it, I'll do it. And verse 6, it says, And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. This is incredible. We've never had a fishing story like this ever. In the daytime with nets, and they're breaking our nets. They're almost sinking our boats. And verse 8, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What just happened here? Something major just happened within Peter's heart and mind. And I don't think it had a whole lot to do with fish specifically, directly. But in that moment, he's recognizing he's in the presence of God. And he falls at his feet. And we're told that while he's clinging to the feet of Jesus, he says, depart from me for I'm a wicked man. But he's holding him close. I won't let you go. But depart from me, for I'm a wicked man. And he's at his knees. Desire of Ages 2.46 says, This miracle, above any other had, he had ever witnessed, was to him a manifestation of divine power. In Jesus he saw one who held all nature under his control. The presence of divinity revealed his own unholiness. Above all, the sense of his uncleanness in the presence of infinite purity overwhelmed him. We've seen this before. It was the same presence of divine holiness that caused the prophet Daniel to fall as one dead before the angel of God. And what did Isaiah say when he beheld the glory of the Lord? Woe is me, for I am undone. Throughout history, all who have been granted a view of God's greatness and majesty instantly feel their deficiency and their unholiness. And the same thing's happening here. So reading verse eight again, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Continuing now, he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so, as were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon, and Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So when they brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. What does that mean to forsake all? It doesn't say they forsook some. They forsook all. 
I mean, he's got the beginnings of a really good business, especially in light of the catch they just made. First, we have to divvy all this up. We have to take it to market. We have to clean all these fish. And then maybe we can talk. I got to put the, the boats up on marketplace and, and at least get a fair value. I have to go home and organize a few things. But they leave all and follow Jesus. So the question I want to ask is, is Peter at this moment now converted? What do you think? It's a big thing he just did. It's a lot he walked away from. It just said he forsook all. So is Peter converted? Let's go to another story. This time we're in the the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 8. A few verses there, verses 14 to 16. And again, there's a lot of stories we could put up. Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 to 16. It says, now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with fever. So he, Jesus, touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and served them. But then it goes on. Verse 16, when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This is a revival that's taking place. And so he's watching him not only heal his mother-in-law, But all those that had fever, he just touched them and they left. And even those that were demon-possessed. Have you ever gone up against someone that was demon-possessed? That will scare you to your core because you're no match for demon. There's only one bit of good news, but it's a big bit, I should say. And that is Jesus, or I should say the demon is no match for Jesus. But to go up against a demon is intimidating, indeed. And even with Jesus by your side, there's that element of, is everything right between me and my Savior? In the blood of Jesus Christ who shed his blood for me, I command you to leave. And here Jesus is rebuking demons he's healing people the whole town comes out in Capernaum and they are healed and Peter is witness to it all firsthand his own mother-in-law sickness gone demon possession gone another thing that Peter gets to observe. Just let your eyes drop down. We're still in Matthew chapter 8, but this time we're in verse 23. It says, now when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he, Jesus, was asleep. In fact, a better translation of that is he continued sleeping. How in the midst of this tumult, this tempest, this storm, In fact, the word for tempest is more like an earthquake, a seismos. This is incredible. People's lives are at stake. Where's Jesus? He's still asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. But he said to them, why? Are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he rebuked, sorry, then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. Why were you afraid, O you of little faith? We've heard that expression already. Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount. He said, now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? 
This time the storm is raging. Jesus is asleep, trusting in his heavenly father. And they're panic-stricken. And the gentle rebuke. Why are you fearful? Oh, you of little faith. Anyone here ever fearful? Circumstances of life not going as you think they should? Fathers wondering how they're going to provide for their families? How is this transition going to work? Where are we going to lay our head? How are we going to pay the bills? There's more bills than there is income. And so we go into panic mode sometimes. Yet I imagine Jesus whispering in our ears, why are you fearful? Oh, you of little faith. And he stands up and he rebukes the wind and the waves and it's calm. Someone could say, easy for him to say, he's God. Listen to this quote from Desire of Ages 3.36. When Jesus was awakened to meet the storm, he was in perfect peace. Doesn't that sound nice? You can have it too. It says there was no trace of fear in word or look, for no fear was in his heart. Doesn't that sound wonderful? And then notice this, he rested not in the possession of almighty power. It was not as the master of earth and sea and sky that he reposed in quiet. That power he had laid down and he says, I can of my own self do nothing. So where's the peace coming from? We continue on. He says he trusted in the Father's might. It was in faith. Faith in God's love and care that Jesus rested and the power of that word which stilled the storm was the power of God. Isn't that the same power that's available to you and me today? Isn't that the same power we can call upon? Isn't that the same peace that can be on your face and mine? But so often our peace is fleeting. It's gone. With one envelope coming in the mail, your peace is shattered. With one phone call, with one doctor's report, but I imagine Jesus again saying, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? The quote continues, as Jesus rested by faith in the Father's care, so we are to rest in the care of our Savior. If the disciples had trusted in him, they would have been kept in peace. Their fear in the time of danger revealed their unbelief. Boy, that's a rebuke to me. In their efforts to save themselves, they forgot Jesus. Have you ever been there as well? How often the disciples' experience is ours, is mine. So again, Peter observes all of this. He takes all this in. It's part of his experience. Is he now converted? Let's look at another story, Luke chapter 8. Verse 41 and 42, and then I realize this is a more complex story, and we're not going to get into the, the layers of this. We may do that another time. But Luke chapter 8, verse 41, and says, Behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Fathers, what would you do? Would you go to Jesus? Would you plead with Jesus? Would you hope and desire that he would stop anything and everything he was doing to help your dying 12-year-old daughter? Of course he would. And so he's pleading, he's begging. 
And then Jesus gets somewhat distracted along the way. He's meandering, but people keep asking and talking to him. Kind of like some of you feel when you're trying to get me to come down to potluck to have opening prayer. Can we please just start coming? And then you get stuck again and stuck again and stuck again. Oh, can we just start already? Yes, please, just start potluck already. Jesus, can you come? Can you come? Can you come? But then he gets the devastating word, verse 49. While he was still speaking... Someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, devastating words, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. That's it. It's too late. Never mind. But when Jesus heard it, verse 50, he answered him saying, do not be afraid. Only believe and she will be made well. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, along with the father and mother of the girl. So we have three disciples, we have two parents, we have Jesus, and we have the little girl. 52, now all wept and mourned for her. But he said, do not weep, she is not dead, but, but sleeping. I think this is still in reference to the crowd. And verse 53, they ridiculed Jesus, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside. And so now it's just that select group inside. And called saying, little girl, Arise. And then her spirit returned and she arose immediately and he commanded that she be given something to eat. I imagine they're, they're weeping and laughing at get her something to eat. And her parents were astonished but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is an incredible story. But it's not for all to witness. There's a select few. Why would Jesus choose Peter, James, and John? It's a question we could ask Jesus someday. And he only could answer that question. But I imagine he had a lesson specific to Peter, James, and John. There's a reason I want you to take this in. There's a reason I want you to observe this. And I think also he puts the crowd out because you remember when he heals Lazarus later? And Lazarus is a testimony to the power of God. And they want to not only kill Jesus, who else do they want to kill? Lazarus. This is a 12-year-old girl. We're going to do it different. Come on in. And those small group of individuals get to witness this pasty white girl regain color. Sit up. And like any 12-year-old likes to say, I'm hungry. Is there something to eat? Certainly Peter's converted now, don't you think? If you just have faith, if you just believe, Peter. How about this story? We're in Luke. Let your eye drop down to chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. Not so much as a story, if you will, but another piece of this. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God did to heal the heal the sick. This is incredible. Twelve disciples haven't been with Jesus that long, maybe a year or so, and Jesus is already charging them. Now I want you to go out two by two. All right, what are we going to do? Well, I want you to preach, I want you to teach, but I also want you to heal. Really? Yeah. And I want you to cast out demons. Really? Yeah, yeah, now now go. Hop to it. Come back and report. 
Who would you entrust with such a duty to represent you in this way? To be able to heal and cast out demons. Certainly they have it all figured out by now, don't they? Certainly they're converted now, aren't they? Another story. Matthew chapter 14. These are well-known stories, so we're going kind of quickly. Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. And maybe we won't read this whole story. Maybe we'll just summarize it because you know it well. But Jesus is teaching the multitude. It's late in the evening. He's filled with compassion. Verse 16, he says, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them to me. And then he commanded the multitudes to sit in the grass and divide them in the groups and so on. And then looking up into heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, Peter being one of them, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. And so they all ate and were filled. And verse 21 says, 5,000 men besides women and children were fed that day. This is the only miracle story, check me on it, the only miracle story in all four Gospels. Again, this is incredible, what Jesus is able to do, and the disciples witness it. This is incredible. And so, he saw the miracle of the fish, Peter saw the miracles of healing, of casting out demons, he himself was giving power over sickness and demon possession, he had the miracle of calming the sea, now feeding the 5,000. Is there anything Jesus can't do? Is Peter now converted? Is he trusting Jesus fully? Does Peter love Jesus supremely? Is he ready to meet any test? Last story this morning, Matthew chapter 14. You're more or less already there. Verse 22, this is immediately after he feeds the 5,000. Verse 22 says, immediately Jesus made his disciples. A better translation of that is really he compelled with great urgency. Why? Because in John's account, it tells us they're wanting to make him king. This is such a big deal what he's just done. Jesus can do anything and everything. He can heal if we go into battle. He can feed our troops. I mean, we need to proclaim him king, and this is the time. The momentum is growing, and the disciples are all for it. Finally, we're going to be recognized. But 22, immediately Jesus compels his disciples to get into the boat and go before him to the other side. And while he sent the, while he sent the multitudes away, verse 23, and when he had sent the multitudes away, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Wait, you're not coming in the boat with us? Where, what, what, why? No, 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 you just go, and he pushes off the boat, and he pushes off the boat. And so they're out there in the middle of the sea. He's, they're obeying what God's asked them to do, but they're arguing, they're bickering. Why are we here, and why is Jesus not with us? How do we let this opportunity slip through our fingers? Is this talk of converted men? And Jesus is up on a little... Mountain is, is too much of a stretch, but it's certainly a nice hill that overlooks the lake. Some of you have been there. And he's somewhere surveying, looking down at these disciples, and he's praying, and he's praying, and he's praying. I imagine it was twilight when he pushes off the boats. And we're going to be told here in a moment it's not till the fourth watch. There's four watches, the last one. Jesus is essentially praying for them all night. So he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. Somehow this account doesn't really depict as well how they are 
toiling and rowing, one of the gospel accounts says. They, again, are trying to not lose their lives in this storm. This should have taken a few hours. It's probably been eight hours that they've been out there toiling and rowing. But now in the fourth watch of the night, verse 25, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out with fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. What a sense of relief. But then Peter, as he often likes to do, wants to take it a step further. Why Peter would ask for this, I'm not entirely sure. It's not the first thing that would have come to my thought. Jesus, come get in the boat and do that thing you did again. That's not Peter. Peter says, he answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. On the water? Last place you want to be in a storm is out of the boat. That's why sometimes they tie themselves onto something physically in the boat. And the waves are, are crazy. I mean, if you get swept over, we can't turn this thing back around and come get you. You're going to be gone. We're going to be separated. It's over. But Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come. And Jesus gives a very simple response. Come. I preach this sermon as, as it relates to following God's will for your life. Lord, if this is you, if this is your voice, command me to come. And I always say, don't rush that step because I promise you there'll be challenges along the way and you'll say, I knew we shouldn't have done this. I knew we shouldn't have taken this call. I knew we shouldn't have moved. I knew we shouldn't have taken this job. I knew, I knew, I knew, I knew. Why was I so foolish? In that moment, you need to be able to go back and say, no, 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 I know God was leading me because all these things lined up. And so while there's a trial now, God has a purpose in it. And so if you rush that first step, Lord, if it's you asking me to come, you'll never have peace after that because every trial will be, oh, I knew I should have done something different. But if you don't rush that step, you can say, okay, Lord, you're the one that told me to come. And here's a trial. What are you going to do? Here's an issue. How's it going to work out? Here's a problem I don't know how we'll resolve. God, it's your problem. So Jesus says, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. I would have, again, been different. I would have said, Lord, if it's you, turn the water into ice. Because I can test the ice. One foot at a time, two feet, it's still holding, I have the boat. Okay, now let's start walking. That's not what he does. Talk about faith. We give Peter a bad rap. Talk about faith. He gets out of the boat. And he's looking to Jesus and he's walking on the water. I want to ask him, what's that like to walk on water? Was it like trying to balance on something that's moving up and down? What happened when big waves came? All these kind of things. But he's walking, he's doing it. He's looking at Jesus. But you know the story. Verse 30, but when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. The Spirit of Prophecy says he got a little proud. He looked back. You see what I'm doing here, guys? Maybe it's both. You know, he's looking back here, and then he's looking back, trying to find Jesus, but he can't hardly see Jesus anymore because his wave is just going to clobber him. And so his focus has shifted entirely to the, from the one that was sustaining him to the wave that's going to clobber him. And his fear trumps his faith in that moment. And he begins to sink. But luckily, Peter does the right thing. He cries out, Lord, save me. And I love the verses that follow. 
And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, similar line, oh you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And then those that were in the boat came and worshiped him saying, truly, I mean, did they really need more evidence? But they say, truly, you are the son of God. So again, I ask, is Peter converted from this moment forward? Fully? Revelation 3.17 says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. Some of you may feel like you're going through the fire. Maybe you feel like you've been going through it for a while. Could it be that God is refining your character so that when the greater test comes, you'll be able to, by God's grace, meet it? Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Lord, I'm afraid. Too bad, Dave, you're crucified in Christ. What you think or feel doesn't matter anymore. Have you been crucified with Christ? It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Is Peter fully crucified with Christ? I submit to you, not yet. Even after all that he's witnessed, not yet. Because as we'll see next week, a major challenge comes. And as much as he wants to think, he will be able to meet it. Does he meet it? Should say, has Peter crucified his sinful nature? 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. I just want to share this quote. It's a little bit of a longer one, but Maranatha 2:37. It says, the old nature, born of blood, and the will of the flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's the problem. The older ways, the hereditary tendencies. There it is. The former habits must be given up, for grace is not inherited. The new birth consists in having new motives, new tastes, new tendencies. He says, behold, I make all things new. We just want some new taste and some new motives and some new tendencies, and then we want to claim that we're converted. Like, some converted? Does that work that way? Those who are begotten into a new life by the Holy Spirit have become partakers of the divine nature and in all their habits and practices they give evidence that they're in relationship to Christ. And when men who claim to be Christians retain all their natural defects of character and disposition, in what does their position differ from that of the worldling? They do not appreciate the truth as a sanctifier, a refiner. They've not been born again. How many in the church, no, 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 forget the church. How about in my own life? Does it fit the description? A genuine conversion conversion changes hereditary and cultivated tendencies to wrong. That's what a genuine conversion does. It changes them. The religion of God is a firm fabric composed of innumerable threads and woven together with tact and skill. Only the wisdom which comes from God can make this fabric complete. God's doing the work, but I'm submitting to him. There are a great many kinds of cloth but which at first have fine appearance, but they cannot endure the test. They wash out. The colors are not fast. Under the heat of summer, they fade away and are lost. 
We have some neighbors, we call them the cable neighbors. They actually have names, but I don't want to share their names. But their business is these cables that you see on railings, but also they sew all of these harnesses. They can be big and and they use webbing and the stitching and and they test, they have a machine that they can put in there and they can put it to the test, the cable as well, and they pull until that thing breaks. And we wanna know how much pull can we give before it breaks. And she's saying there's cloth out there, looks good on the outside, but it's not altogether as it should be. And when put under stressor, stressor? Under stress and pressure. It's called stressor. There's plenty of them out there. It breaks. Under the heat of the summer, they fade away and are lost. The patchwork religion is not of the least value with God. He requires what? The whole heart. And that's where too many of us get off. Whole heart is too much. Some of you in here, 10%. I'll give them 10%. Some of you, 20, 40, 50. Some of you are really proud of the fact that you'll give 95%. What's the devil gonna do with that 5%? Under test and trial and stress? First Peter, the more we go along, the more this will have meaning to us. In this you greatly rejoice Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, that the genuineness of your faith may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation, the appearing of Jesus Christ. The genuineness of your faith Does Peter know what he's talking about here? I think he does. Desire of Ages 394 talks about Jesus this way, compassionate redeemer, who in the full knowledge of the doom that awaited him, tenderly smoothed the way for the disciples, prepared them for what? The crowning trial. And strengthened them for the final test. Man, this drill sergeant is so mean, he's ruthless, he wakes us up so early, makes us do so many push-ups, climb the wall, do the rope, do the thing. I hate this guy. And some people shake their fist at God. But could it be that compassionate redeemer that says, there's a final test coming and I wanna strengthen your faith. I want it to be genuine. I want to give you a little something now that will test you, that will teach you a lesson so that later, by my grace, you can stand. Isn't that a compassionate redeemer? If men will endure the necessary discipline without complaining or fainting, by the way, guilty, God will teach them hour by hour and day by day. So maybe the prayer I need to pray is, Lord, help me to learn this lesson in this trial and help me to learn it quickly. Do you ever have the same trial? Maybe you're not learning your lesson. Maybe I'm not learning my lesson. But Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking unto Jesus. Because he's the author and the finisher of our faith. He wants to do a work in you, in me, in us. As the compassionate redeemer. So when the final tests come, we can stand. He did it for the disciples. And he's doing it for us. But I don't like trials. I don't like push-ups. But how many in wartime situations are so thankful that in so many seconds they can scale the big wall? 
They're thankful that they made them do the push-ups. They're thankful they made them run so many miles in gear, heavy, wet, in the rain. Because in the heat of battle, that training carried them through. That's our compassionate redeemer. That's what he's doing for you and for me. And we don't always like it. It doesn't feel good. But I'm convinced God's not so concerned about us being cush now as being in the kingdom with him later. And so that's why we praise the Lord in the midst of our trials. And on top of that, he doesn't drop us in our trials. He's there with us in the midst of our trials. He's encouraging us in the midst of our trials. In fact, we'll see as we continue on, he prays for us as he did the disciples in the midst of our trials. And so I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what the silent request is in your home. But the Lord is wanting to be that compassionate redeemer to bring you through if we'll just trust him. So my challenge, unlike Peter on the water, keep looking unto Jesus, recognizing that he is our author and the finisher of our faith. Dear Heavenly Father, we're just beginning this three-part journey here, but we see in you today that in the midst of these various experiences and trials that we face in life you are preparing us Lord by your grace through these trials through our compassionate redeemer may our faith be found as genuine only by your Holy Spirit we pray in Jesus name Amen